Almighty God, we give you thanks this day for your word. And we ask that by the power of your spirit, you would grant us understanding of your word. Your disciples ask you to teach them to pray. And in this series of sermons, Heavenly Father, we ask that you would teach us to pray. In the precious name of Jesus, amen. Jesus' ministry was largely confined to areas of Israel that were not in the Jerusalem precincts because that is where the Sadducees were. That is where the religious rulers were who would have the authority to cast a sentence upon him. When Jesus began his ministry publicly, after he was baptized by John, tempted by the evil one, he cruised into Jerusalem. And he cleared the outer court of the temple of the money changers, the court of the Gentiles. And the reason he did that is because the house of the Lord was to be called a house of prayer for all the nations. Three years later, at the end of his ministry, Jesus returns to that same temple and does the same exact thing. He clears the temple of the money changers who had set up their carts and their desks in what was called the court of the Gentiles. And he said, my father's house is to be a house of prayer for all the nations. You see, prayer is something that the Lord desires from us. Is it something he commands of us? Yes. And we must acknowledge that we fail in this regard, don't we? We don't pray as we should. We don't pray as often as we should. And we grow impatient when our prayers aren't answered as if putting a cup of cold water into a microwave and pressing an express button it comes out a minute and a half, two minutes later. Job, in this morning's Old Testament reading, begging for God to hear his request. His request was a rather unusual one, wasn't it? Job wasn't asking to be healed. Job wasn't asking that his riches be restored. Job was asking that the Lord would just get it over with and crush him once and for all. Maybe there's been times in your life when you've felt like that, even though it's unlikely that any of us have ever experienced what Job was going through. But we feel that way, don't we? We feel that way because we live in a world that is crushed by sin. And we are part and parcel of that world. And we certainly, each of us, if we were to look into our hearts, would realize, I'm doing my part here. This is a world filled with sin. This is a world crushed by sin, marked by sin, marred by sin, and yes, indeed, Lord, I've done my part this day. That is certainly one reason why we need to pray. There are very many aspects to pray, and in this part of the Sermon on the Mount, again, just by way of a very quick review, Jesus says, when you pray here in Matthew 6, not if you'll pray. Remember, I challenged you last week 
to ask yourself if you're fulfilling this command. When you pray, and in this particular case, he's talking about private prayer. He's not talking about prayer from the pulpit, not talking about the prayer that an elder would uh, usher from, from the pulpit, not talking about a prayer meeting. He's not talking about family devotions necessarily. He's talking about private prayer here. It's one type of prayer. When you pray, go into your closet, shut the door, and your Heavenly Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you openly. Hmm. We'll be rewarded if we pray secretly. What do you think that term reward means? Does that really mean that if you go into your bedroom today, shut the door, beg God for a Rolex watch, and $150,000, that you're going to get it. Now, I would like a Rolex watch. I would certainly like $150,000. Now, let's make it $1.5 million. Let's just times it times 10. Is God going to reward us because we obeyed the letter of the law? We went into our room. And maybe you even say, well, it's a closet. So I'm going to go into the closet and shut the door. I'm going to pray in secret. And God will then reward me openly. None of us would think that. Did my mic just cut off? Hmm. None of us would think that. That's not what Christ is getting at. What Christ is getting at is that our prayer life is something intimate between us and the Heavenly Father. It is something that is not to be taken lightly. We use that phrase, don't we? We say, don't take this lightly. What, what should, should we say in the positive way? Phrase it positively. You'd better take this heavily. Did you know that the word honor in Hebrew has the connotation of weight? Honor thy father and mother means to give their opinion and their person the weight that it deserves. He has a weighty opinion. The things of prayer are not to be taken lightly. They are a weighty subject. And last week I gave you a colloquial definition of prayer. A popular one. Conversation with God. And that's perfectly fine. Many of us will have conversations after church. Maybe some of you as husband and wife have had a conversation or two this week that was more serious or more light depending on what the topic was. Deciding whether you should go to Burger King or Pizza Hut isn't a momentous decision unless you're tired of eating burgers. But there's times when the conversation is much more deep. I think we would all agree that a conversation with God, prayer, must be a deep conversation. Prayer is an offering up of our desires to God. In the name of Christ, with the help of His Spirit, acknowledging and confessing our sins and thanking Him for the attendant mercies. Prayer is an offering up of our desires to God. Now the first thing we need to realize is that our desires need to be those that God wants. Maybe God wants you to have a Rolex watch. Again, I really wish that God, I don't wish, it's an awful word, I certainly desire that God would want me to have a Rolex watch, a nice brand new Rolex Submariner. You know, really, really nice gift. 
wouldn't wear it all the time because it's showy, but boy, that's a beautiful looking watch. But I seriously doubt that that's what he wants for me. I think he would have me spend my $7,500 a little bit more wisely. It's a lot of money for a piece of metal that spins around and tells you time. It's beautiful artwork, but it's a lot of money. So let us think of our desires for a moment. Review in your mind for a minute what you prayed to God about this week. There are a number of different types of prayers. There are types of prayers that happen when the brakes go out on ice. Quick prayers. Prayers of desperation. You can call them foxhole prayers. There are many accounts of people who are atheists during wartime that prayed to something or someone when they were under fire in a war. And then, alas, they return home and they continue in their atheistic ways. One time I was visiting one of the dearly departed saints from this church who lived in the city of Butler on that gigantic hill that is on that one side of Butler. There's a lot of hills. One before you cross the bridge. And I was driving in that older suburban we had at 92. The master cylinder went out on the brakes. I didn't know it was the master cylinder at the time, but I found out later. And that was, um, I joked around with the mechanic, and I said, well, my prayer life greatly increased. Because I realized, hmm, I have myself a problem here. The brake pedal's going to the floor. I'm pushing it through the floor, and nothing is happening whatsoever. And I thought, okay, I have an emergency brake. If I have to use it, that's what it's actually for. There's a light down at the bottom of the hill. And I said, Lord, please let that light be green when I arrive at that corner and let me cruise through at a safe speed. And the Lord answered that prayer. And then I said another prayer. And I said, please let me get every green light on the way home so that I can get to a friendly mechanic right there. And he did. I didn't have to use my brakes hardly at all. I drove very slowly, put my flashers on to let everybody know that I was having troubles, because I figured if I do crash at 20 miles an hour, I'll do less damage than if I'm going 50. Basic physics. Maybe you've had a prayer like that. Maybe sometime this week. And then there's the other ones where there's not an emergency and we just throw it up very quickly. Oh, Lord, just let me have a good day. Lord, bless us. Lord, watch over us. Those are um, prayers that we do, not of necessity, but just out of habit. And if we think about our prayers, they're very general. Bless the children. All right, well, what does that exactly mean? Here's what I want you to understand, that God wants you to pray with your mind. You have to pray with your spirit, obviously. You need to pray with some emotion, obviously. God's giving you them. But you need to pray with your mind. You need to think these things through. What exactly does it mean, bless my children? Are we asking for specific things? Are we praying for their future spouses? Hmm. That's a thought. They would come from godly Christian homes. They would be deep covenantal believers. 
keep our children safe. From what? Well, accident, illness, injury. What about the evil one? Do we put a hedge around our children, around our families with the evil one? He is a person. He has his minions. And the Christian family is his primary, his primary target of attack. All you have to do is turn on any children's television network and just analyze how the father is portrayed in those shows and you will realize that there is, this isn't done by accident. The father is uniformly portrayed as either a dunce, a pain in the family's neck, or he's just conspicuously absent. Why not the mom? Well, sometimes they're portrayed fairly dumb as well. The children are the wise ones. The children are the ones in these shows who have all the wisdom. If anything is counter to what the Bible teaches, it's that. The father is the head of the home. He's certainly not to be a dictator. He has no right to do that. But he is the one who is supposed to know the most about spiritual things. He is to be the one who is teaching his children the most things. And that makes perfect sense because the evil one is attacking the portrayal of the father. What is your prayer life like, Dad, Grandfather? Is it deep? Is it rich? It's difficult to pray. And we do not know how we should pray. That's why Romans 8 talks about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Did you know that when you go to war in prayer, and believe you me, it's war, that you're not there alone. That the Holy Spirit is interceding for you, according to the Apostle Paul, with groans too deep for words. You are not there alone on your knees. You are not alone there on your couch. The Spirit of the living God is praying for you and guiding you as to how to pray. Very often I find it odd that we just assume that people will know how to pray. I think about it. I know folks who have spent more time teaching their children to ride a bike in a car than they have to prayer. We don't want them to get hurt in a car, right? So we teach them how to drive. We don't want them to get hurt on a bike, so we teach them how to ride a bike. We don't want to have them get hurt at work, so we teach them to use certain tools. Well, all of those things are important, but can you think of anything more important than teaching a child the proper way to pray? Yes, Virginia, there is a proper way to pray, and there's an improper way. The first thing that we have to understand is that we can't go to God with a flippant, irreverent attitude. We cannot do that. No matter how much our desires align with the Father's desires, in other words, if we're praying the Father's will, we're on much a better track, but if we're doing it in a flippant and irreverent way, the Father will not hear our prayer. And when I say not hear, I don't mean that he's not physically hearing it. He's omnipresent. He knows everything. That's one reason why we don't pray to saints. And just take a little detour here for a minute. Your prayer is to be given to God and God alone. He alone is omnipresent. He alone is everywhere. If you say a prayer to St. Michael the Archangel, well, what if he's overdoing a battle in Japan? He's not God. He can only be in one place at one time. 
If he's fighting Satan literally one-on-one over in Japan, what are the odds that St. Michael the Archangel, and that's a cool-sounding term, what are the odds that St. Michael the Archangel is going to hear your prayer here in Butler County? Zip, not a zilch, it won't happen. That's why we only offer our prayer to God, because he alone is omnipresent. He alone is omniscient. He knows everything. He is everywhere. And, of course, he is all-loving and kind to his children. We need to go to God with a proper attitude. And the proper attitude, of course, includes faith. If you don't believe he's there, if you don't believe that he's listening, then your prayers will fall on deaf ears, as it were. But I know that you believe that he is there. And I know that you believe that he is listening. Here's where your faith might get weak. Do you really believe that he cares that much for you with your piddly little requests? I'm here to tell you he does. If you're a Christian, an adopted child of the living God, then when you go to God in prayer, the Father is all ears. He loves you that much. It's not so much that prayer is a privilege. It is. It's not so much that prayer is an honor. It is. But it's an encounter with the living God. To know that the God who has always existed, to know that the God who formed the worlds by the word of his power would actually listen to every single groan and syllable and tear that you ever offer is unbelievable. That's how beautiful this God is. And I think the reason why our prayer life is either dull, dry, or non-existent is because we don't really understand how wonderful He is. Does He hate sin? Of course He does. But He loves you. And He has granted you access to Him. Why don't we go to Him? can only be one reason, really, when we think about it. We just don't think he cares enough. Think of the relationship between an earthly father and his children. A child grows up in a family where they ask the father for the basic necessities of life, and they are not given to them, and there are many children in the world who live in homes like that. After a while, the child will not go to the father anymore and say, Dad, can I have some food? I knew a father once, a friend of mine's father, who had serious problems. Family was poor. The father would actually go to Subway. Actually, didn't go to Subway. Went to a local deli, got a sandwich, and would eat it in front of his children as they sat there, and he was hungry. You know, those kids grew up liking delicatessen sandwiches, and they grew up hating their father. Hopefully none of us have ever had that excoriating type of experience. But if you grew up in a family like that, you don't bother to ask dad for food anymore because you know he's going to say no. But if you grow up in a family where if you ask the father of the house for some food and it's not candy at 8 in the morning or a chocolate bar at midnight and you get it, then the next time you're hungry, you will go to the Father. So now let's 
place this in the spiritual realm. Is the Father that created you, is the Father who you claim to worship, which type of Father is He? Is He the Father that grants His children's requests when they're lawful? Or is He a Father who is cruel and mean and vindictive? I think many of us have the second picture of God. That we think that He just can't be bothered. Oh, He created me. Yeah, He saved me, but... The good stuff happens in the next life. Well, the real good stuff does happen in the next life. But he cares about you. He cares about you so much that he executed his only begotten son for you. He has adopted you into his family. And that word adoption is very serious for for us to understand. In the ancient Roman Empire, an adopted child had the same rights as a natural-born Roman citizen. If a man had all daughters and adopted one churlish pagan son, then that son would get the inheritance over and above the natural-born daughters. Because that was the law He was the son. You're an adopted child of God. That means that you have great privileges in the court of God. That is why we do not need to heap up empty phrases as the pagan does. He's there. He's listening. And yes, indeed, he wants to bless us. And again, blessings may not be a Rolex. I can almost guarantee you that it won't be a Rolex. It won't be. Job's prayers didn't get answered for a long time. Jesus' prayer went unanswered in the garden. He was really afraid. Do you understand that? He was terrified. He was sweating. This passage tells us like drops of blood. Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. But not my will, but thine. That's the attitude we need to have. To realize that God may put us in a place that we do not want to be at. But that he knows best. Yes, Father does know best in this regard. And that his will is all that really matters. Jesus did not want to die. Fully healthy man of about 33 years of age. No reason for him to die. And the death that he was going to die was going to be like a death like no other. A brutal execution for the sins of his enemies. You don't know what that's like. I don't know what that's like. And we should praise God for it. That's the last part of it, with thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. You see, I think that we would thank God more often if we realized how little we actually deserve. I think many of us think that we actually deserve more from life than God has given us, when in reality we deserve nothing. Our sins disqualify us from getting anything from God. And the forgiveness of sins 
is the greatest gift any of us can ever have. And if we realized how offensive and awful our sin was to God, we would thank him so very much more often and at a much deeper level for the great forgiveness that he has given us. When was the last time you thought about heaven for more than just a a brief moment? I encourage you to take some time this afternoon to think about it on this Sabbath day. This is the day of rest that God has given us. A special day to especially reflect upon his graces and his mercies. People ask me, what is heaven like? I say, I don't have the foggiest idea. I just know there's no dentists. There's no surgeons. There's no eyeglasses. There's no pain. There's no suffering. And if you're a Christian, that is your place of citizenship according to the Apostle Paul. We may be Americans, but our citizenship really is in heaven. And all this life is, is a preparation for the next life. And if that's the case, then what does that say about so many of the earthly things that take up our time? They won't be here. They won't be in the new heavens and the new earth. The silly arguments that we have won't be in the new heavens and the new earth. So why don't we save our energy for what really matters? The easy answer is we're sinners and we enjoy fighting over these silly things. The easy answer is we're sinners and we enjoy these tiny, little, squiggly, wiggly, earthly pleasures. Not realizing that the really good stuff is found alone in a room with a low light and it's just you and God. It's hard. It's hard to pray. But the reward is unbelievable. What we have to understand is that when Jesus says the Father will reward us openly, what do we right away think about? I keep joking about the Rolex. But we think about that. A reward is something physical, something tangible. What if I told you that the greatest reward of prayer itself was prayer itself? Can you think of anything grander than having a conversation with the God of the universe? Can you think of anything that can possibly top that? I got a new Corvette for my birthday. Oh, that's fantastic. I just talked with God for an hour. And imagine if he physically manifested himself in some way and sat right next to you the way he manifested himself to Moses. You have to choose, gentlemen, 63 Corvette, an hour with the physical manifestation of the Father. What would you choose? I know all of you well enough to know that you're clear thinking enough to realize that 63 Corvette's nothing compared to that audience with the king. Well, he's not going to manifest himself to you the way he did to Moses. That was a once in a covenantal history type of thing. But you need to realize that prayer itself is the reward. Conversation with God? Giving up our desires to him? Being able to confess our sins to him over and over again, knowing that he'll forgive us? Knowing that his patience will never run out with us? People hurt us and we don't forgive them. 
They hurt us twice and we really hold the grudge. They do it for five years and forget it. It's never going to be erased from our memory banks. And we will hold it over their heads as long as we possibly can because it just feels so good. Do you know that when you go to God with the same sin, that his patience never runs dry if you're truly repentant of it? Now, he may put his hand of discipline upon you to move you away from that behavior, but he will always forgive you. There's never any doubt that, oh, I've confessed this 500 times. And kids, believe you me, when you get older, you'll have to add something up and it will, you'll realize, yes, I've done this 500 times. That's really, that's less than once a day for two years. <laughs> add it up over 20 and 500 is a pretty low number. Do you have some sin that you have to regularly confess to God? It may not be anything big. It's a passing thought. Anger with somebody. Little thing. Every time you go to God, He forgives you. Every single time. That is the great reward. So when Christ tells us, when you pray, I urge you to consider what is actually occurring when you pray and go home from this place and pray and pray and continue to pray because God never sleeps and he never slumbers. He's always there for us. Let us go to him for a moment in prayer. Oh Lord, we ask that you would teach us to pray with our minds, to give you our desires and that you would conform our desires to your great will. In Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.